You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Amen. You can be seated. And um, kids who are up to second grade can head to the back of the room if you are sending them to one of those classes. Uh, just a special note that uh, we are in that transitional time. I know where kids are getting back into school and they're grading up. So just keep that in mind when you're sending your kids back. Uh, whatever class they were in throughout the summer, uh, they can go ahead and grade up to the next class. And if they were in second grade, they're going into third grade, uh, just remember that they are, are going to sit in here uh, with us uh, from that point on. All right. Genesis chapter 24 with me, if you would. As we're singing that song and just telling the Lord and uh, reminding ourselves that He's the one thing that we need, it just uh, is a grace to me that the Lord reminds me that He's the one thing we need and He has graciously given Himself to us. All that we need in Himself as a gift. Um, praise God for that. Aren't you grateful that the Lord is so good to us? to give himself. So we're continuing in this Genesis series. Uh, if you're new with us, uh, then I'll let you know who I am. My name's Patrick, one of the pastors here, and um, we've been working through uh, the book of Genesis from the very beginning, uh, and we find ourselves here in chapter 24. We've been journeying for some time now, for several chapters, with Abraham and his wife Sarah, but uh, in chapter 23, we read about Sarah's death and burial, and, um, and Abraham uh, trusting in the promises of God, the promises that God literally spoke to Abraham to give him the land of Canaan and give him descendants who would dwell in that land and even possess it forever. Um, we, uh, we see Abraham buy a piece of land to bury his wife, and it became the first time that Abraham or any Hebrew person actually owned land in Canaan. So there was a bit of a, a stake in the ground, literally and figuratively, uh, when Abraham uh, began to live in the land there, uh, not as an exile, but as an inhabitant. And then here in verse 24, we begin to see uh, more of the life of Isaac, the son of Abraham and Sarah, uh, Isaac, his name means laughter, uh, and he was named that by God um, for one thing because of the joy that God was giving to Abraham and Sarah uh, by giving them a son in their old age. When Isaac was born, Abraham was 100 years old, Sarah was 90, so it was a miraculous conception and birth, and they had waited for decades since the time God promised them a son until the time the son was actually born, decades of living in a foreign land that God had led them to, waiting on this promise to be fulfilled. And he did fulfill it. And then Sarah, at 127 years old, died. Now Abraham is, uh, at that point, in, verse, in chapter 23, is 137 years old uh, and didn't live that much longer. But he lived to see his son Isaac grow to adulthood and to the time when he would uh, be uh, in need of a wife and be ready to take a wife and so here we find ourselves in chapter 24, and uh, I'm going to read the entire chapter. I know that may seem unorthodox for us to read such a long passage, but uh, we don't have anything else better to say than the word itself, so we're not going to count it as a loss. Genesis chapter 24, uh, I'll read this out loud if you would follow along with me, and then we'll pray and ask the Lord for some more help here. Now Abraham was old. You can say that again, right? Now Abraham was a... Did I hear my brother David over there grumbling? That's, I know that's not young to you. That's a long gray beard, but he was older than you. All right. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all, the, in all things. 
And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country, to my kindred, and take a wife from my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife from my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Naor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the wall of water at the time of evening. Sorry, by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed by, for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me, whose daughter are you? Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder, and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about all these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, they, uh, they said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver of gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys, 
And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife from my son, from my clan, and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, Please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, Drink, and I will draw water for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, Please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank. And she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, Naor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servants, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels, and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahairoi and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered her face. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother and took Rebekah and she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its usefulness in teaching, correcting training in righteousness, rebuking. Thank you that it's of such great profit to us to know your word, to study it. Lord, we ask this morning, would you have your word examine and study us? Exert authority over us. Lord, let our hearts be humble this morning before you. We need to be taught by you. 
We understand, Lord, that it's the work of your Holy Spirit that does this transforming work in our hearts, that causes the Word to be alive to us and active to us and sharp and, and able to divide between our hearts and our spirits to teach us and make us more like Jesus and show us your character and your wisdom and your will. So we ask for no less than this, a miraculous movement of your spirit to teach us. We ask in the midst of all this that the Lord Jesus would be exalted and worshipped and better known this morning by us because of you. We ask for these things in his powerful name. Amen. All right, so this passage once again shows God intervening uh, to fulfill his promises because of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. I say once again because that's been the theme of the entire book of Genesis so far is that God has created a world, a universe, and he's put mankind uh, into that world, and then mankind almost immediately began to rebel against the Creator and worship themselves and created things rather than worshiping Him. They turned away from His wisdom and embraced this foolishness of rebellion against Him. And from the moment of their rebellion, He began this course of action of intervening in their lives and in all the lives of human beings to show Himself, to demonstrate His power, His divine nature, demonstrate His sovereignty, His love, His care, His wrath against injustice and sinfulness. He is showing Himself to be real and to be holy to humanity. And as a means of intervention, He's also coming and meeting with certain people and speaking directly to them even Abraham, who he's making promises to, gospel promises to bring redemption, to bring uh, not this sense of exile in a world that those who trust and follow God are strangers here, but that this place even and their hearts could be transformed so that this could be home again with God as their Savior and as their King. God is intervening once again to fulfill these promises because of, directly, because of His steadfast love and His faithfulness. We know that from reading this passage. As we uh, read through this account, of course we have more characters here than we might be used to working through Genesis and any one of our passages. Uh, we have a lot of moving parts. Um, so you have Abraham here from the outset, and he's really old. And I think one of the reasons why the servant, who's never named, uh, but who I'll be glad to meet one day, the servant is intent on getting back to Abraham, and I think uh, that it's because Abraham was really old, and it was a long journey back, and he was worried he might not make it back before Abraham was dead. And then he could say, look, I've done what you asked me to do, I've upheld my oath, Abraham is very old here and almost becomes, although he's active there in the beginning, at this point in the text, he becomes someone who isn't out there traveling, fighting battles, negotiating things, but rather he's sending people. And it starts to take a turn towards Isaac in the narrative. So we have Abraham, we have Isaac, we have, of course, the servant, we have Rebecca, we have Rebecca's family. Uh, the grandfather, Nahor, whom most likely this land that they lived in is named after. You notice the land was named that and the grandfather was named that. Then Bethuel, the father. Then Laban, the brother. Uh, then the mother comes in to play. And the mother and Laban uh, have this blessing. It seems like the father may be uh, also very old. Remember, he's uh, Abraham's uh, uh, nephew. And if Abraham is more than 137 years old, the nephew would probably be pretty old also, to the point that his son is actually going out to greet people, he's arranging things in the home, he's giving, he's willing to give away daughters and all these things, so it seems that the father here is elderly. But these are the characters that we have, the people in this narrative, and we have a lot to learn from them. So what I'm hoping to do this morning is lead you through this passage 
and help you understand what it is that we can actually learn from them in their interaction uh, with the servant in particular, uh, and then their attitude towards the Lord, the attitude towards what the Lord is doing, and then even their unwitting, the deeper you get into it, the more you realize these people are involved in something that they don't even really understand yet, something that we, uh, by God's grace, understand and will worship Him for this morning. But let's take a journey through this, and, and let's take these people kind of one at a time, these groups one at a time, and let's see what we can learn from them. So, uh, just to recap uh, really quickly, what you have here is Abraham sending his servant into, back into Ur, back into the land where he came from because his family's still there, to find a wife for his son. Now, uh, it's been a long time since Abraham or any, any people who went with Abraham, as far as we know, ever journeyed back. They've just been living in Canaan. I mean, it's been decades. Uh, the, these are just distant uh, people, distant relatives that Rebecca may have heard of, maybe heard her father or her grandfather talk about, oh yeah, my brother Abraham, he heard something, he saw something from uh, who, someone he called God, and he ended up leaving all the family, leaving all of us here, and we haven't seen him since. We haven't heard from him. This would be Rebecca's uh, understanding of her family. So you could imagine this person showing up and saying, hey, I've come from Abraham, I'm here to take a wife for his son back home with me, like, uh, everybody looking at each other like, who's going to go, right? This is crazy. This is not expected. They didn't have some forewarning of this coming. So you can imagine how dramatic it would be for this traveler to come and say, I've come from your, uh, your great uncle or from your, uh, your brother and and to make this kind of request and say you're sent by God, this is really unusual. Here's what we can learn, some of the things we can learn from the servant who carries out the mission. First of all, uh, he was willing to make an oath to something really difficult because he believed God was in it. He was willing to bind himself to this oath, believing that God was in it. So he understands the stakes. He understands what a great undertaking this is and that it's very important to Abraham and, and important to Abraham for really good reasons. Because remember, Abraham is looking not only to just have a son who can be his heir, but that his son will have sons and their sons will have sons. So much so that the promise of God to multiply so greatly in the earth that there will be a great nation that can't be numbered would be created. So this thing of Abraham looking for a son isn't just like, hey, go, by, go find my boy a nice girl. I want to see him happy before I die. Abraham is looking to see promises of God fulfilled, and he wants to make sure it's done in the right way that God says. So we know, we know that this is a very gravely important thing, for the servant to commit to, but he was willing to do it for the sake of Abraham and for the sake of the Lord. His desire is to be faithful to his mission. We can learn that from the servant. His desire is to be faithful to his mission. He was willing to take an oath. The second thing that we can learn from the servant, he knows that he has to be directed by God in order to be successful. He knows that he has to be directed by God himself in order to be successful. Now, here's the point in the sermon where you're all supposed to start thinking of your own lives and going, ah, right. Okay, just. His desire is to be faithful to his mission, and he knows that he must be directed by God himself in order to be successful on his mission. Here's the third thing that we can learn from the servant. He prays and watches for God's provision. Now, the pattern of Scripture about how we pray and watch for God's provision normally is not that you ask God for some kind of very specific sign, and if He does it, you know He's involved, and if He doesn't do it, you're going, I guess God's not involved. So you see it here with this servant. You see it later on with Gideon. You remember he puts the fleece out. Lord, if it's covered in dew in the morning, I'll know you're here. Then he lays it out again. Okay, if it's not covered in dew in the morning, I'll know. 
And God is gracious, he's merciful, and he answers these prayers. But keep in mind, this is not the normal pattern for praying and watching, but God's gracious. So if you find yourself in a place where you believe God is telling you uh, to ask for him something very specific in order to see his involvement, I'm not telling you you can't. There's biblical precedent that you can ask God, please show yourself to be here. If you do this, I'll know you're here. If you don't do that, I'll think that you're not in this, and so I won't go there. You can do that, but I'm saying count it as the minority of prayers in the Scripture and not as the majority. Nevertheless, the principle stands that he's praying and he's watching for God's provision because he knows that he must be directed by God himself in order to be successful and to be faithful to his mission. He's praying and watching for God's provision. So I would put that to you as a principle on God's mission directed by him, pray and watch. The fourth thing that we can learn from the servant, when he at the first sniff of success, he doesn't even know if Rebecca is the woman yet, but he believes, okay, and now I understand because I've prayed and I've watched and God has proven that he's here through these miraculous kind of providential arrangements and and appointments, I know now that God has at least led me to my master's kinsman. What's his first response? To worship God. To bow down and worship God and thank Him for His provision for being with Him, for leading Him. That's verse 26. uh, I'm going to ask you to look directly to it with me. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. He's celebrating and worshipping God for understanding that God is leading him. Now at this point, again, in, in connection with this principle... I want you to really notice that he doesn't know yet whether he's going to return home with a wife for Isaac. All he knows is, God is with me. God is with me. This may not all turn out the way I hope or the way Abraham hoped, but I know that God is with me. And even just at knowledge of that alone, I'm going to worship God and thank him for his presence with me. Four things that we can learn from the servant. If you're taking notes, I'll just recap real quickly. His desire is to be faithful to his mission. He knows he must be directed by God in order to be successful. He prays and watches for God's provision. And his first response at the sign of any success is not skepticism, but to worship God and believe that God is leading him. So there's the servant, his character, his really admirable qualities that we can learn from. We can also learn some things from the family, from Bethuel, from Laban, from the mother, Rebecca's family. The first thing I think that we can learn from them, I want you to notice in verses 29 through 33, notice their willingness to listen to and consider something very unusual that the Lord might be doing. Okay? Something very unusual that the Lord might be doing. Let's go to verses 29 through 33. Look at their willingness to listen and consider. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw, I'm not sure initially why he ran other than seeing a stranger near his sister. Maybe he was just like, are you okay? Verse 30. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm, where did this come from? And heard the words of Rebekah's sister, thus the man spoke to me. So she quickly gives him an account of what this guy is saying so he can understand why are you wearing all this expensive jewelry? Who's this guy with his camels and his men? He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring, the servant was. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels, and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet, and the feet of the men who with him, who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. 
But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have come to say. So Laban said, speak on. Let me hear why you're here. Let me listen to you. Now, the reason why I'm pointing that out as the first thing we can learn from Rebecca's family is that as a culture, we tend to be very skeptical or very gullible. We're either very skeptical or very gullible. And we even, I think, pride ourselves. We may not use those words. We may use words like discerning. I'm a very discerning person. And maybe you are. But I think by and large, most people in the West who call themselves discerning are actually just very humanistic and skeptical. Or the gullible people, they may call themselves uh, free. I don't know, something like that. It's just some, something like, I'm very open, I'm very free. And, and really what they are is someone who's just willing to believe anything. If you just make it sound spiritual at all, I'll believe it. If you just, if you just tag Jesus' name on it at all, I'll believe that it's from him. So we have people on both ends of the spectrum in our culture, and what we want to be is not skeptical or gullible, but we want to be like Laban was here in this passage, that we're going to come out, we're going to investigate, but if somebody says, I'm here on behalf of the Lord to do something for his namesake, that we would lean in and go, tell me about it. That our first response wouldn't be like, okay, one sent by God. And it wouldn't also be just like, well, whatever it is, I'm on your team. But that we would be people who lean in to listen for the Lord. There's a willingness there to listen and consider something unusual that the Lord might be doing. And of course, what always, always, always is our measuring rod to understand if something's from the Lord or not? The Word of God. Always measure things against the Word of God. Here's the second thing we can learn from the family. They are quick to recognize the providence of God. Look at verse 50. Verse 50 says, Then Laban and Bethuel, that's her father, answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. When they see clearly that God is involved and that there's no denial, they're just willing to attribute it to the providence of God. And they're quick in recognizing that and quick as in honoring God for that. The thing is from God. Then the third thing. They're quick to submit to the providence of God. They're quick to recognize it, and they're quick to submit to it, to submit to it. So I, I think verses 50 and 51 here, well, uh, we've read verse 50. Let's look at verse 51. They say, Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. Once they believe it's from the Lord and that he's spoken it, they're very quick to submit to his providence. Which reminds me of Acts chapter 4. Uh, if you look at verse 19, you have Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin. And they're commanding them not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And what was their response? Whether or not it's right to obey God or to obey you, you judge for yourselves. But as for us, we, we cannot help but speak about the things we've seen and heard. The things that the Lord has commanded to us what choice do we have? The thing is from God. Quick to recognize the providence of God and quick to submit to the providence of God. We can learn that from Rebecca's family here. We can also learn something from Rebecca. Let's look at Rebecca's response in this whole thing. So actually, I think Rebecca in all of this has the most difficult position, doesn't she? This guy shows up. He's rich, which is nice, but could also be kind of suspicious. Uh, like, is this, every, is, also, is this all the gold he has and he's lying about the rest of it? Did he really come from my great uncle Abraham? I don't know. I don't know this guy. Is this story that he's telling about his journey here and about God sending him and all these things? I don't, I don't know any of this. And not only is he just rolling into town wanting to spend the night with me, 
but he wants to take me with him tomorrow to go back to this foreign land, to this supposed rich people, right? She's in a very difficult position. As the father of a daughter, I would say maybe second place is Rebecca's dad, who is trusting that the Lord really did send this person, trusting in the providence and the evidence that God really did send this person to take his daughter back to Isaac. She has a very difficult position, which just heightens, it just heightens the example of her response. The first thing we can learn from Rebecca, notice her Christ-likeness to a stranger. Just her Christ-likeness. What's turned out to be the providence of God, working His will, right, and in an answer to the servant's prayer, but notice her Christ-likeness to the stranger. Then the second thing we can learn from her. Notice her willingness to listen to and consider something unusual, not just something unusual like the family. This is interesting. Let's listen. But something unusual, something scary, and something completely life-changing that the Lord might be doing. Her willingness to listen to and consider that. That this will change everything if I say yes to it. I'll have to leave my family I'll have to be taken to a foreign land and given as a wife to someone I've never met before. That if God is really doing this, she has to say yes to something that is very scary. But she was willing to do it. And then finally, the third thing that we can learn from Rebecca here, although I'm sure there's more, but this is what I'm offering to you this morning. She's not only willing to listen to and consider the providence of God, but also to rearrange her entire life around it. What is God doing? What is God providing for? What has God commanded? She's willing to rearrange her entire life around what God is doing. I want that to just marinate in your heart. We have been given... All of this knowledge. All of this knowledge. What's Rebecca working on in this passage? Very, very limited knowledge. When you're talking about getting married in a foreign country, you, need, you would rather have a lot more knowledge compiled at this point than what she has. But she's willing to recognize that God's providence and join with God in what He's doing, even to rearrange her entire life around it. We have been given mountains, glorious mountains of knowledge about God and what He's doing. Let's rearrange our lives around this very certain truth that we have. Rearrange our lives. Verse 58, towards the end. Verse 58. Sorry, let's start at verse 57. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. Verse 58, what did she say? They called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. She didn't argue. She didn't want to take the 10-day offer from her family. She said, I will go. Why do you think she said, I will go? Because she believed God was in it. She believed the Lord was in it. It was obvious to everyone there, to the servant, to the family, and to Rebecca, God is doing something here. She was willing to say, I will go. Up to this point, uh, I know I'm just certain of it, that there's so much more we could learn from these people, from the way they responded to God. There's so much more we could say about what God is doing and how He's doing it and, and our expectations from God. How much information will He give us before He wants us to go and join with Him and submit to Him? We could say all kinds of things, and I know learn all kinds of lessons. But here we've learned some things from these people. And now, I'm going to ask you to look, at with, look with me at how this passage fits in with the greater, the broader narrative of what God is doing, how He's working in the world to bring light to darkness, to break the power of sin, 
that has entered the world through the fall of Adam and Eve? What is God doing on a grander scale, and what in the world does this have to do with it? Let's back up from this. We've been kind of here on the ground with Rebecca, with uh, Abraham and Isaac, and with Rebecca's family, and with the servant. We've been seeing things at eye level with them. Now let's Let's bring this up to the kind of 30,000-foot level and try to see what God is doing. In order to do that, I'm going to have you look at, uh, within this passage, at uh, verse 60. Verse 60. Because this is where the passage actually begins to take a much broader kind of narrative on. She said that she was willing to go, and so verse 59, they went. She went with them. But then verse 60, as they were going, the family blesses Rebekah, and they say to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young woman arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now this blessing that they pronounce over her is a blessing for two reasons. And they meant it to be a blessing. The first thing is they want God to make her the mother of thousands of ten thousands. So they're pronouncing this blessing over her in hopes that God will make her the mother of a nation. The mother of a great multitude. Now, I don't know, it's, you don't know from the text if the servant said, listen, this is what God told my master Abraham, and this is what's in view here, uh, is that if she goes and becomes the wife of Isaac, it could be that God has appointed her as the mother of thousands of ten thousands. We don't know, we don't get any clue that they were told that, and, and so, but whether or not they were told that, by the servant, we know that God has put on their hearts here this blessing for her that she would become the mother of thousands of ten thousands. And that's the first way that they are blessing her. They're speaking a word of blessing over her. Here's the second way. They want her offspring to conquer his enemies. So they want God to make her the mother of thousands of ten thousands, and they want her offspring to conquer his enemies. Now, that's how it's a blessing, that not only would her offspring be a multitude, but that the offspring would conquer his enemies. Now, it's also prophetic. It's not just a blessing. It's also prophetic. I, that's the part I don't know if they understood or not. But here's two ways that it was prophetic. God did make her the mother of thousands of ten thousands. And how do you, Old Testament, recognize a prophet that if what they say comes to pass you know that they're from God. Well, what they said did come to pass. We know now. They didn't know then for quite some time. God did make her the mother of thousands of ten thousands. Here's the second way that this blessing actually became prophetic, that her offspring did conquer his enemies. He did possess the gate of those who hate him. Now, you may, you may notice something as I've been describing this to you. You may have noticed something happening grammatically in this prophetic passage that is odd. Something grammatically. May you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gate of his enemy, of those who hate him. How can ten thousands of people be called him? Grammatically odd, right? Who is him? Who is him? I know that question is bad grammar, but it's the all-important question of this passage. Bad grammar, awesome theology. Who is him? Now, in order to answer this question, I, I again, am not going to ask you to trust me. I'm going to ask you to trust the Bible. So, if you would, turn to Galatians chapter 4 with me. So we are, we are way back in the Old Testament. You're going to go all the way to New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians. Then you're going to find 
Galatians, and this is a letter from the Apostle Paul written to the church in Galatia. The church in Galatia was failing to understand how Jesus had fulfilled the promises of God in the Old Testament, and they were believing, some people were leading them astray, that they still had to do do some things according to the law in order to be followers of Christ, and Paul is making a case that Christ has fulfilled the law on their behalf. So in Galatians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul makes uh, a case that's very important for us right now. 4.16, he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one who is Christ. Now, the word offspring in the Old Testament, when God makes these promises, grammatically, in the Hebrew, it could be taken as singular or plural. But Paul here, uh, because of his great faith in God's detailed revelation to mankind, understands that there are times in which, and Paul refers to Old Testament offspring references, sometimes as being plural and being the, the actual people who came from Abraham, but there are particular times when Paul says it's not meant to be taken plurally, but it's meant to be taken singularly because it is referring to Christ himself. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings. It doesn't say specifically that it's talking about this multitude, this thousand of ten thousands, referring to many, but referring to one, one offspring who is Christ. So when Paul says, now the promises were made to Abraham, he's referring to some specific promises made by God. Genesis chapter 15, chapter 17, and some other times that God spoke to Abraham. And he was speaking promises that Abraham's offspring would possess the land of Canaan forever and that the blessings through the offspring would come to every nation, that every nation would be blessed. So in fact, this blessing that they speak over Rebekah, unknown to them at the time, I believe, is actually quoting God himself when he blessed Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. So look at Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 18, If you want to just actually go in your Bibles, you don't have to flip back far from Genesis 24. And look at what God directly speaks to Abraham. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself, that is, on my own, swearing by my own self and my own name, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son. This is when God commanded uh, Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, but then he stayed Abraham's hand, spared Isaac. He says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, Paul knows that it is impossible that through this multitude, this thousand of ten thousands of people, it is impossible that these promises can all be fulfilled. But in the one offspring, Christ, it is already done that these promises will be fulfilled. So he knows God was speaking about Christ himself when he said, offspring. So according to Paul, it would be perfectly appropriate for us this morning to read our passage, this blessing spoken by Rebecca's family, to read it in this way. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may the Lord Jesus Christ possess the gate of those who hate him. Perfectly appropriate to apply Paul's theology to this blessing in this way. We know so because the Bible tells us. We don't do things haphazardly 
just playing with theology and throwing around ideas. Maybe it's this, trying to connect dots and just going, we're probably right, so let's teach it authoritatively. We don't play that game. But when we have the Bible saying, interpret it in this way, then we know we can do this. We know that what they were saying amounts to, may Jesus Christ the Lord possess the gate of those who hate Him. So, brothers, sisters, listen. If we can read it that way, then we know, as we have known throughout Genesis, there has not been, I I don't believe, a generation who's walked this planet that God has not preached the gospel to. The gospel has always been on the tip of God's tongue toward humanity. That though the world is broken, though it's filled with sinfulness, though it's filled with pain and mourning and longing for completion, longing for healing, there's not been a generation that hasn't heard from God, healing is coming. Healing is coming. I'm going to send my servant. I'm going to send the offspring. And he will possess the gate of those who hate him. He will possess the enemy, your enemy, who is seeking to destroy your soul, seeking to derail his plan of glorifying himself through a people in this earth who will be called by his name. He is coming. And now we can say, he has come. Jesus has come. Through his virgin birth, his sinless life and ministry, his sacrificial death on the cross for us, Jesus crippled and stripped all the power of those who hate him. He made them powerless. And then we have Romans 8, verses 33 and 34. Paul says to those who trust in Christ, this Savior who is made powerless his enemies. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Why does Paul ask that question in Romans 8? Because what are the weapons of our enemy? Those who hate Christ and hate his people, the weapon is accusation. The weapon is you're unworthy of God. How could you think that you could be reconciled to God? You're stuck and dead in your sins and he's holy, far removed from you. How? How could you possibly think to have a saving relationship with this God? The accusation, the condemnation that is spoken. But Paul says, who can bring any charge against those whom God has determined to save? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Who is to pronounce the judgment of death on the sinner? How could anyone condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Christ Jesus died in the place of those who should have been condemned. So then you imagine the enemy, those who hate Christ, coming to make war against him and make war against his kingdom. And what are they coming, the weapons that they're coming with? It's accusation. It's fear. It's condemnation. And Jesus on the cross takes our condemnation for us and takes out of the hand of the enemy the only weapon he ever had. He makes him powerless. But now, so far, if we have Jesus being born into the world through a virgin, having a sinless life and a a powerful ministry that declares God's presence and kingdom in the world and dying on the cross in our place for our sins, he may have taken the weapon from the enemy and made him powerless, but has he yet possessed the gate? Has he yet possessed the gate? In the ancient world, to possess the gate of your enemy means that you have so vanquished, so conquered him, so routed him out that you now have ownership of his city. The most important place where the city's leaders gather together and govern the people in this monument of the city's presence in the world, you have eradicated his presence and made your presence known as now the governing authority over this place. 
you possess his gate. But through his life and death on the cross, has Jesus possessed the gate of the enemy? Well, if it ended there, no. No. Because we would have a dead Savior, a dead defender, a dead intercessor. But when Jesus, listen, friends, please look at me. When Jesus rose from the dead, when he rose from the dead, by the power of the Spirit of God that's now at work within you, when Jesus rose from the dead and stood beside his grave and unwrapped himself from his grave clothes, even folding neatly the cloth that had been around his head and placed it on the place where he'd been laying and rolled the stone back by the power of his own will, walking out to reveal himself to humanity again as risen, as victorious, as king, when he conquered death, he possessed the gate of all those who hate him. And there is now none who condemn, none who can accuse, because Christ Jesus is there to intercede for us as reigning in all authority over those whom he saved. Jesus possesses the gate of those who hate him. It is finished. It is done. Jesus is in unquestioning victory over all who hate him. Are there still those who hate him? Yes. There are those who hate him. But there is no doubt, there is no doubt that Jesus will have authority over them, that Jesus will reign even over them, and that there will be even a time when they, those who hate him, will bow, and they will understand fully and forever that he is Lord. Paul said so in Philippians, that Jesus, who is willing even to come into the world to humble himself, becoming like a person and taking the form of a servant, became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess on earth, above the earth, under the earth, that Jesus is Lord. There will be a day when every enemy will be silenced. Every person who hates God will be defeated. And only those who've trusted him will remain to live with him forever. He is the conquering king, and we are the citizens of his kingdom. Though this life, uh, let's, let's be real and let's be as honest as the Bible is, though this life is full of trouble, full of trouble, Jesus said so. And even though those who have by faith chosen to live a life of godliness and of righteousness in the world, though they will face persecution. We can never be snatched from his hand. Never. He said so himself, John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. Greater than all enemies. Greater than all who hate him. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now they, at that time that Jesus said that, picked up stones to kill him. Because they hated him but they could only lay a finger on him when he was willing. And when he was willing, he crippled them by his death on the cross. And though they were unwilling, he rose from the dead and possessed the gate of all those who hate him. So this Genesis chapter 24 passage, so much to learn 
from these people, from their example, but so much more to learn from what Christ has done. Because if Christ didn't come and fulfill this prophetic blessing, then we would have no power to even notice their example, to walk in it, to honor it, because we wouldn't have the Holy Spirit of Christ inside of us given to us as a gift of His grace. So I'm asking you to take comfort this morning that if your faith is in Christ, it's well-placed. It's well-placed. And your hope is secure eternally. There's a lot of competition in this world. People want you to be afraid of this or afraid of that. They want you to trust in this or trust in that. And I'm pleading with you to trust only in Christ, to hope only in Christ, to fear only Christ, because He's the only one worthy of all those things in the life of one of His sheep. It cannot be snatched from His hand. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.